morning to you, church. Good morning. Whew. Tell you what, with these frigid temperatures this morning, I, I look around, I think there may be a few more watching online today than what we normally would have, all right? Um, hey, if that's you, by the way, if you're watching from home, I hope you are curled up warm and cozy on the couch. I really do. I really do. But, but welcome to the, um, to the online streaming service uh, here at First Baptist Hearst. And hey, we are grateful that you are watching with us today. And let me say also to all of you that are here in the room, we are grateful that you are here with us. You braved the cold and made it out today. And we're grateful to be with you because, hey, even with a ridiculous Arctic blast of winter air, it is good to be together with God. God's people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, church, I think I've told you all recently how that um, I tend to be a fairly non-committal person. And, And as I've thought about that, I suppose that might seem just a little bit surprising, maybe even alarming <laughs> to hear that from, from one of your pastors, right? Like a pastor ought to be committed. Well, rest assured, there are some things that I am just all out committed to, joyfully so. I'm committed to following Jesus, okay? I'm committed to, to my wife, Stephanie, over here. I mean, we're now in our 31st year of marriage, and I am committed to her without reservation. I'm committed to loving and supporting my, my family, my son, and my daughter. I mean, they're grown now, but you know, they don't stop being your kids when they turn 18, do they? <laughs> right? And so I'm committed to them. Uh, I'm committed to pouring myself into the gospel ministry here at First Hurst. Committed to you, the people of this great church, and to our staff who, who serve and lead so faithfully here. And I'm committed to helping lead and shepherd the Lord's congregation here. And like some of you, I'm sort of committed to uh, getting in better shape this year. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? You know what that sort of committed feels like? Like on the days when I actually feel like working out. There's a lot of those, right? (laughs) Or on the days when I convince myself that being thinner and healthier really does taste better than all those delicious, bad-for-me foods that I enjoy so much. You know that feeling, anybody with me? You know that struggle that we have, right? And you know what, as I think about it, I'm probably not all that committed. Can we just go out for pizza for lunch today, anybody? (laughs) No, probably shouldn't do that. I'll probably have a salad. But don't hold me to it. All right, anyway. Well, as I've observed others, it seems pretty clear that I'm not alone in this non-committal nature, right? And I'm not just talking about getting in better shape. I think a lot of us prefer that sense of freedom that comes when we're not committed. Many of us, in fact, have become masters at avoiding commitment unless we're just 100% sold on the idea, whatever it is. Well, as we're, we're taking some weeks here to introduce biblical community in this new year, um, we're going to find this morning that commitment, man, it's just a fundamental requirement for authentic biblical community. We're going to return to Acts 2.42 as our foundation for this morning. This marvelous verse, it delineates for us Uh, some, just some, not all, but some of the elements that are necessary for us to experience that authentic biblical community. And and you may remember from last week how we traced that series of events, how one thing led to another. You remember, and we went from, for many of the Jerusalem Jews, their very first exposure to the gospel message at all. And we saw that that led to this, and and, and this led to the next thing. And down, we took seven steps down, and we ended in Acts 2.42, where we saw that those same... uh, Um, Jewish folks, they, for the first time, experienced true biblical 
community, and it's detailed in Acts 2.42. And so we're going to begin to unpack verse 42, and the first element that we're going to see this morning, the first element of biblical community is, guess what? Commitment. In fact, let's read Acts 2.42 together, and it says there, just this one verse for our text, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But I want to just zoom in on those first few words there. They devoted themselves. That's, that, that, that first element of biblical community is devotion. It's commitment. Now, remember, like we said last week, you can have community on some level that's very different from biblical community. In fact, you can probably experience community even without an element of real commitment. But biblical community, it begins with this commitment. Commitment has got to be part of it. It, it says here in verse 42, they devoted themselves. And the word for devoted there that, that Luke used, the Greek word, it means to give constant attention or care to something. Constant attention and care to something. And that, I think that's a pretty good summary of, of commitment. If I'm committed to my marriage, I'm giving constant attention and care to my marriage. If I'm committed to my kids, they're getting my constant attention and care. I think you get the picture. And so uh, to be a people of commitment, a community of commitment, there are some specific things to which we must give constant attention and care, some things to which we must be committed and in addition to the four terms, the four specific things we see listed in verse number 42, rest, excuse me, rest assured, we're not going to just brush past those. We will come back and look at each of those individually over the next four weeks. But in addition to the, those four things this morning, we're going to learn about commitment itself. We'll do that through the lens of Paul the Apostle as we explore the things to which he committed himself. It's, it's these three areas that you'll see on your outline this morning, three areas of commitment that will help us to foster an environment of authentic biblical community where it can flourish. The first thing we see in Paul's life is that he was committed to Christ. Committed to Christ. And, and that might seem like, well, that just goes without saying, like, duh, Jason. I mean, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, he was committed to Christ. And you know what? I'll give you that. But let's go ahead and dig into some of the details anyway about Paul's commitment to Jesus. And, and, and in the background, I want you to remember that now Jesus himself said that to follow him, that is to be his disciple, requires a deep commitment. We see it in passages like Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus was talking about commitment here. Or just not many chapters later in Luke 14, 27, he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is telling us that there is a very real commitment that's required if we're to follow him as Lord and Savior. We see that commitment in Paul's life, in his own commitment to Christ. And, and Paul revealed that partly through the terms that he used to describe himself. One of those being servant. He said, I am a servant of Christ. And in fact, in at least five of the New Testament books that Paul wrote, he referred to himself as the servant of Christ. And the Greek word he used there each of those times is the Greek word doulos. Doulos. And it's, it's, it's a word that's scattered all across the New Testament. It means not only servant, but it's sometimes translated slave or bond servant. 
depending on the particular context. Well, think about that word bondservant. Paul was saying, I'm a bondservant of Christ. He was saying that he had willingly bound himself to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognized Jesus alone as his master, and he was committed to obedient service, whatever that may entail. Not only did he use the word servant, but he also used the term prisoner. In no less than four of Paul's letters, he identified himself as a prisoner of or for Christ. Now, we, we know from our recent very lengthy study of Acts that Paul indeed was a prisoner for Christ. That is, he was imprisoned by uh, Roman authorities because of his faith in Jesus. But it's interesting to me that he also describes himself as the prisoner of Christ. What exactly does that mean? It's an analogy that Paul uses to highlight the fact that much like a prisoner of the state, Paul's independence and his freedom had been arrested and brought under the jurisdiction of the Savior. In other words, Paul had willingly surrendered his will unto the superior will of Almighty God. He was following the example of Jesus that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus was praying to the Father and he said, not my will, but yours be done. He willingly surrendered his will. That was the level of Paul's commitment to Christ. We see it in, he said, I'm a servant. He said, I'm a prisoner. But then we also see it in the suffering that Paul endured for Christ. We see, uh, we see that in several passages of Scripture, but just one that I'm going to read for you, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7. Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul was, this is just one place where Paul was saying, I have suffered for Christ. And he wasn't saying that to brag. He wasn't saying it to complain or to whine. He was just saying, it is what it is. I have suffered. He was intimately familiar with suffering for Christ. But rather than allowing that to make him bitter or become disillusioned, he instead saw that, that, that suffering only made him long to know Christ in a deeper way. It drove him to Jesus rather than driving him away from Jesus. His suffering strengthened his resolve and his commitment to the Savior. I just wonder this morning, what does your own commitment to Christ look like today? Would you consider yourself a bondservant of Jesus because you've committed to obey him come what may? Is your will so surrendered to the Lord's that that metaphor, prisoner, would apply in your commitment to Christ? As you face suffering in the sometimes, this sometimes toilsome life, have you allowed that to push you away from Jesus? Or has it drawn you instead closer, nearer to his heart, and strengthened your commitment to him? If we're to know biblical community, then we must be, like Paul, first committed to Christ. Secondly, then, we, we see that Paul was committed not only to Christ, but was committed also to Christ's church, his church. 
And his commitment to the church, man, it's just plastered all over the 13 New Testament books that Paul wrote. And he wrote them as epistles or letters. In fact, at least 12 times in those letters, Paul referred to the church and to the people who make up the church as beloved. He used that tender term because he was so committed to the church. In addition to preaching the gospel, his ministry was about establishing and building up and strengthening the church, churches, individual churches. Almost all of those 13 letters that he wrote were written, addressed to the early churches that had been established, many of them established under his own ministry. Paul invested heavily in church leaders because of his commitment to the church. I mean, the books of Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy, we call them the pastoral epistles. He wrote them to these young pastors in ministry to help train them up and to help them lead the church well because he was committed to the church. Acts 20 verse 38, or excuse me, 28 is where Paul was talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus in a finer, final farewell to them and he charged them, he said, care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Because he was so committed to the Lord's church, he wanted to see it cared for and nurtured by its leaders. But man, it wasn't just the corporate organism of the church that he was committed to. We find over and over in Paul's New Testament letters where he sent greetings to specific named individuals in those churches that he was writing to because he was committed also to the individual believers who make up the church of God. You see, the testimony of Paul's ministry makes it clear. He was committed not only to Christ, but also to Christ's church. But let's take a moment and contrast that commitment to the Lord's church with the rampant church consumerism that we often see. You know, consumerism, unfortunately, has become a natural mindset for us. I mean, when we go to the store or a restaurant or a local business or a hotel or whatever, fill in the blank, we are constantly expecting to be served, aren't we? I mean, customer service, it's always on our mind. We judge businesses based on how well they treat us. Many businesses live or die based on how they treat their customers. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I probably spend more money at Chick-fil-A than any other fast food restaurant, okay? And you know what? It's not because I like the food so much better. I mean, I like it okay, but I'd rather have a burger most days. And y'all don't hate me when I tell you this but I don't even like their fries. I know. I hope I can still be your pastor, all right? But, uh, but I had not ordered fries at Chick-fil-A in years. But man, for a fast food restaurant, their customer service just cannot be beat. And, and so I keep going back. And partly... It's because of my consumer mentality, my desire to be served. That's part of what keeps taking me back there. But man, when it comes to church... We have to push hard against that consumer mentality, that bend in our nature, because I'm just going to remind you, we are not called to be church consumers. Consumers, you see, expect to be served. Consumers set self-serving expectations. Consumers make demands. A consumer, as a consumer, I'm looking out for myself. I'm interested in what pleases me. I make decisions based on what I need or want or enjoy or approve of or as a consumer, I make decisions based on what, here's a dangerous word, what I prefer. And so consequently, consumers have no intrinsic commitment to others. 
Because a consumer, as a consumer, I'm interested in myself and what I'm consuming and paying for. Consumer has no intrinsic commitment to others. You see, I don't go to Chick-fil-A because I want the guy in booth seven to have a great dinner, all right? I go to Chick-fil-A because I want to enjoy a good meal. I want to be well served in the process. I want someone that's going to look me in the eye and be pleasant and smile when they take my order. I want someone to refill my drink without me even having to ask. And I want someone that's going to say my pleasure 15 times before I leave the building, right? (laughs) Well, we have to push against this consumer nature when it comes to the Lord's church because we're not called to come here and consume Remember, consumers have no intrinsic commitment to others. We've got to be committed to the Lord's church and to the individual people, the believers here who are the church. In fact, let's just take a quick look at the difference between, some of the differences between church consumers and church committers, all right? So, are we consumers or are we committed? Consumers ask questions like this. Do they sing songs that I like? The committed asks, do they sing songs that God likes? Consumer asks, does the preaching entertain me? Does it make me feel good? The committed asks, does the preaching honor the Lord and his word, even if I don't like the way it makes me feel? A consumer asks, is this where I want to be? The committed asks, is this where God wants me to be? Is this where he's planting me? Consumers, how much of the church's resources can I get? Committed, how much of my resources can I give? Consumers, what's in it for me? Committed, what's in me for it, for the church? Now, think back to that dangerous word I told you a minute ago, preference. And let me tell you, If I'm committed to the Lord's church, then I'm not looking for the door every time something happens that I don't like when my preferences aren't satisfied. Because commitment is not based on preferences. And now don't misunderstand me. If there is something wrong, and I mean theologically, doctrinally, spiritually wrong, and the Lord releases you to go elsewhere, and then man, head for the door. All right, But, but if you're shopping for a church like a consumer, And that's whether you're checking us out because you're thinking about leaving the place where God has you planted right now, or if you're thinking of leaving here. If you're shopping for a church because your preferences are not being met where you're at, I would just counsel you, believer, to seek the Lord earnestly in prayer, and you be sure that he is calling you somewhere else. He does that sometimes. But make sure it's not your consumer preferences that are calling you somewhere else. You know, when, when Stephanie and I bought the house where we live now, um, the previous owners, they had a large playground structure in the backyard. And um, underneath the playground was this huge area of just wood chips, all right? I guess that makes it softer when your kids fall off the, the swing or something, right? Just this big area of wood chips. And, well, the playground came down and was gone before we bought the house, all right? And that's fine. I didn't want a playground. I also didn't want a big area of wood chips, though, right? And so uh, I'm talking about like a third of the green space in our backyard was just this ugly area, just wood chips. And so 
we bought the house. One of the first things I did, I went out there and I started raking those wood chips up and shoveling them and I collected them all. Huge pile over in the back corner of the yard. Okay, and, and when I did that, because I want grass to grow here, and when I did that, what I found is that underneath those wood chips was this layer of that, that weed guard cloth stuff, you know, that's like staked down in the ground, and so I had to get all of that pulled up. And then when I got past that, I discovered where, well, the ground is really hard, hardened right here, and man, grass is going to have a hard time growing on this. And so what I had to do is I had to, you know, get the garden tools and start tearing up the ground, you know, tilling it some to, to create an environment where, where the, the, the grass could take root, and I had to kind of baby it. And, and, and when I would mow or weed eat around there, I had to be careful. I didn't want to, you know, cut off any of those runners that were finally starting to, to take off, and uh, I had to water it really well. And man, that first summer, there wasn't much grass there at all. It was still this big, ugly, muddy area now because the wood chips were gone. But that next summer, the, the grass began to creep over. I didn't plant any because I was too cheap to spend any money on sod, right? Um, but, but I'm going to baby this grass and get it to, to grow over there. And it, and it began to do that. And, and the next summer, it grew a little further. Finally, by last summer, it's grown all the way over to the fence. And there's no more wood chips. I, I put them all in, you know, in flower beds, used it uh, that way. But no, my point is this. I didn't look over my neighbor's fence and say, the grass is greener over there. I sure wish I had his yard. I started working the land and the soil right there and babying it and helping the grass to grow right where I was. You see, the perfect church isn't out there and the perfect church isn't in here either. The grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you stay and you plant and you water and you work the soil, where you work at it, where you invest, where you're committed to one another in the body of Christ, where you invest time and energy and emotion through the joys and the sorrows of this life. And you do it in deep, committed relationships with other believers as you worship and you grow and you serve together in the work of gospel ministry. That's where the grass is greener. And that's where biblical community can flourish to the glory of God. We've got to work it. We've got to be committed to the Lord's church. Paul was committed to Christ. He was committed to Christ's church. Finally this morning, we see from Scripture, Paul was committed to Christ's kingdom. Now, that word's going to go away real quick because I'm jumping into Romans 1.16. Write that down, Christ's kingdom. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel Paul wrote, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we could replace in that word, that word Greek there could be Gentile, means the same thing. Paul saw a bigger picture than just his hometown or people that looked and talked and thought like he did. He saw that the kingdom of God is, is bigger. It's about people of every nation and tribe and tongue collectively giving glory to God and worshiping the Savior. And so his ministry took him all over the Roman world of his day. And, and as we saw, especially last fall, studying through the, the book of Acts in that lengthy study, we found that Paul was often... I mean, just it seemed always on one of these long, detailed, uncomfortable, burdensome, great missionary journeys to carry the gospel to all the world. And I'm telling you, it was millennia before Gene Roddenberry gave Captain Kirk that famous line, to boldly go where no man has gone before, right? 
Paul was doing that millennia ago. He said, I'm going where no one has gone before. In fact, in Romans 15, he said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who've never heard will understand. What Paul was saying is this. He said, I'm all about going to places where no one has gone before with the gospel. I want to share Christ with those who've never been told about God's great love for them. I want to carry the gospel to those who've never heard the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He went to tell them how that by grace, through faith in Christ, they could be forgiven. They could be saved from sin because Jesus died in their place and rose in victory to secure their salvation. Now, the vast majority of Paul's ministry was preaching and having gospel conversations with Gentiles, people who didn't look and talk and think like him. He was building up churches that were filled with Gentile believers because, you see, he was committed to the kingdom, not just to his own small, very Jewish part of the world. And in the familiar words of Philippians 2, Paul looked forward to that day when Every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and, uh, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue, not just the Jewish ones. Paul was living out the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it remains true today that, like Paul, we who would see biblical community flourish, we must be likewise committed, not only to Christ and to his church, but also to his kingdom. We can't be so wrapped up in our little first-hurst bubble that we neglect to carry the gospel to those who have yet to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, many years ago, when the Lord called me and my family to worship here at First Hurst, we didn't come here because there was a job opening. We came here like so many of you. We were a family in the community and we needed a place to worship and we came here. And the Lord drew us here. The Lord, And part of the way he confirmed that decision for us that this is where we need to be was the, the, the very outward focus of this church. It wasn't so much about coming here to do church. It was like it's been immortalized on a plaque on the wall that sits just outside those doors that says, go and be the church. Our pastor emeritus, Dr. Jeff Burnett, etched those words into our spirits week after week for decades that we're not all about us here inside these four walls. We're to be about Christ's kingdom outside these walls, out where people in need of the gospel go on in ignorance of the Savior. And in the same vein, we now send you out each Sunday with that reminder that you are what? That you are sent to a world in need of the gospel because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than us here in our little corner of Hearst, Texas. Our ongoing commitment to the kingdom is seen in several ways. One is just our, our missions ministry where we are all the time actively going to serve in difficult, dark places all around the world all year long. And we prayerfully and financially support boots on the ground, missionaries serving in those places because we're committed to the kingdom. We see that commitment in our local outreach as well. Like, for instance, the, the Christmas at, at your campus events that happened in December where several hundred people from our communities who have never been to our worship centers before, 
But they came and they, they heard about the love of Christ and the true story of Christmas and the plain gospel was shared with them. Or our Night of Hope outreach last month where hundreds of you volunteered and worked together to, uh, so that the gospel could be shared with a multitude of folks. And it was. And because we're about the kingdom, it wasn't just shared in English, but it was in Spanish and in French and at the Trails Campus in Arabic as well. Because the kingdom isn't just about people like us. The kingdom is about all people worshiping our Savior. And it's that commitment to Christ's kingdom that helps bind us together as believers in a community of faith. Our shared focus on the gospel. Our shared love for people who need the gospel. Our shared heart to see our glorious Savior worshiped and adored by people of every nation and tribe and tongue. This shared commitment to Christ's kingdom helps to foster that authentic biblical community here at First Hurst. Like the believers in the early chapters uh, of Acts, they were people of deep uh, commitment and devotion. Paul, too, was deeply committed to Christ to his church, and to his kingdom. It's one of the fundamental building blocks of authentic biblical community. And if we're to see that fostered and flourishing uh, on an ongoing basis here at First Hurst, we must continue to be people of commitment, a community of commitment, committed to Christ, to his church, and to his kingdom. May it be so at First Hurst. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, um, for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it, truth that we've been able to explore this morning. You know, my very non-committal self doesn't always like that you call us to commitment. But I thank you that you do. I need that calling. I need to be committed. I certainly need to be committed to you, to your church, to your kingdom. And this morning, as we move to a time of response, Spirit of God, we just invite you to, to work and move among us. And there may be some with us today that what you've really pricked their spirit about was how they need to be more committed to you, fu fully surrendered to you and to your will. Others, perhaps you're drawing them to be committed to your church the people who make up your church in deep, committed relationships. Or maybe there's one that you're calling to be committed to sharing the gospel, to building the kingdom of God outside these walls. God, however you choose to, to move in our spirits and whatever you would call us to, God, we, we pray for just a, a freedom in this place to respond in faith and obedience to you and that it would bring glory and honor to your name. For all this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.